everybody. 22nd official Greyhound Time podcast presented by Almonds. I'm Armand Siraji. And I'm Jimmy Malone. And today we have a very, very special guest. Um, some of you may know him. Uh, he was a Clayton High School alum, or he is a Clayton High School alum, class of 1999. Graduated with Justin Hildebrand. Some of you may know as Mr. Hildebrand. Um, he, it, he went on to play football at the University of Northern Iowa. And um, now, and then after that, he went on to play in the NFL as a punter. Um, and now he's working um, as kind of like a person who helps with the finances with retired athletes. Um, so really interesting guy. Played a lot of sports at Clayton. I think he played hockey with Hildo too. Football. Probably somewhere else too. We'll, we'll find out what else he played for sure. But uh, this is our first... Uh, professional athlete on the podcast Clayton alum so it should be definitely an interesting interview you know before we get into it have to shout out almonds man we I, I'm gonna be honest with you I went there for you, you know usually I work there right yeah so oh I didn't know you worked there yeah you, oh, you worked, worked there too right? I worked there too no right. way yeah so I was there for dinner though a few nights ago right I had the peppercorn beef filet is that good let me tell you that man Giovanni and Tony in the back, Woo. dynamic duo, fire. <laughs> uh, Almond's Restaurant, 8127 Maryland Avenue. Stop in for lunch or dinner. Um, yeah, so now let's get into it. We, we're really excited to sit down with Derek Frost. Uh, yeah, and we hope you guys like it. Take a listen. All right, so we're here today with Derek Frost. Uh, how you doing today? Pretty good, guys. Cool, cool. Um, so first question, uh, how would you – well, first, can you talk a little bit about what you uh, did at Clayton uh, when you were here and, and things like that? Uh, yeah, uh, I was 99, and at that time, you guys may not remember this, but everyone thought all the planes were going to fall out of the sky <laughs> on uh, January 1st yeah. because all of the software that was designed uh, – didn't have the first two numbers in it. It was called the Y2K bug. I don't right. know if you, it's probably in your textbooks now. Yeah, it's yeah. probably a history event. But actually, <laughs> nothing ever happened, right? But it was 99, and it was just, you know. And we were kind of that grade, I think, that uh, was a little off as well. We, we kind of had an interesting group. But uh, big into sports. Um, a, lot of our, a lot of our students, I think, at our, at our time were also big into things like this. And um, I think it was DECA. And mm -hmm. I was never involved in that kind of those kind of things. But looking at what you guys were doing, I kind of maybe wish I was. <laughs> but um, at the time, it was I think Mike Music ran this program. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I played uh, sports here. Um, we were talking, remembering how many sports I played, but I was primarily a football player and a baseball player. And I broke my hand um, first year of freshman um, football and then actually ended up playing soccer that year and still some football but just kicking no no other positions and um, played baseball like I said I also played uh, two years of basketball played a year of hockey uh, what else I'm trying, thinking if there was anything else in there I think that was it mm -hmm. um, but yeah I had a good experience here and um, really enjoyed the teachers and I think some many of them are still here today um, and, and it's funny enough, uh, people like Justin or mm -hmm. 
people that I, I graduated with, and I believe Lee Laskowski, I don't know if he's still here or was here, but he left just last year. Actually. I played yeah. baseball with him and football with him, and so it's uh, still uh, still a uh, you know cl- cl- tight knit community, right. and uh, I'm sure there's other people that are still here that I know. I I just would have to look around and see, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's been a great experience for me, and um, that's that's kind of in a nutshell. Nice. So what was it like um, playing football at Clayton and then also at all the other sports? Well, my dad was the high school football coach here for a long time, and uh, him and I didn't get along the best when I played. <laughs> it's mostly probably my fault, but we had a good group of guys, and unfortunately we kind of kind of messed up our playoff run, but we were a very good team at the time and um, really kind of one of the more fun times in my life. Wish I would have done more in the playoffs uh, for my dad, but um, – Played baseball and loved loved that with Craig Zucker and you know he um, was a big part of developing some of my uh, mental approaches but also my, my talents in baseball and I had hurt my arm uh, and actually didn't have a single offer to play college baseball and ended up playing Division One baseball at Northern Iowa and being a part of a, a team that actually won their division and went to a, a regional and that was something that I you know never knew if I would be good enough to do and somehow it just worked out and Craig was a big part of that. And, um, you know, my father with football, again, I, um, you know, thought I would play big-time football, but my recruiting process kind of was all over the place, and I ended up getting one offer to go to Northern Iowa, and then I was offered to go to the Air Force Academy. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want to go to the Air Force because I didn't really want to give them four years of my life after the academy (laughs) and um, had no thoughts at the time that I would be playing in the NFL, but I just was unsure of – of having to give that to, um, and you know, really any institution, but the Air Force was is probably a great place, and we actually ended up playing them in baseball at the at the academy. It's a phenomenal facility out there. If anyone's got a sh- chance to go there, it's a great honor. But it just wasn't the right thing for me. But um, yeah, you know, kind of snuck into college, and like I said, played two sports, and quite frankly, had really no accolades in either one until my, uh, actually, even after I graduated um, college, uh, to be be honest with you. And um, when I was done playing college football, I didn't even have an agent. My dad was my agent. And uh, I would just show up for the pro workouts that they had at the school, and somehow that turned into nine free agent contracts. Wow. So So, um, you kind of mentioned it, that you didn't have an agent uh, right after you finish your senior year but what was that process like kind of you know going to those workouts and then eventually when you got those offers um after the draft how did how did that feel honestly I was shocked (laughs) um so what had happened was you know the season was over and we Northern Iowa has a series of you know highly drafted players uh Kurt Warner actually wasn't drafted but uh David Johnson who's running back in Mm -hmm. in Arizona's drafted in the third round and we usually send about one guy a year to the league. So we did have NFL teams always looking, but I was somewhat off the radar. And um, and what, what what guys like you don't understand is back then data, online data and data was very new. It wasn't really used for anything. I right. kind of like the Moneyball movie with um, uh, with the angel, or with the uh, athletics, right? right. I mean, that, it was a new idea. And so, yeah, it was very possible to miss uh, someone at that time, and I didn't really think about it, where it was very data-driven um, performance so you know it's not going to be me but someone should write a book about kicking and punting because <laughs> yeah. it is the most 
it is that in any team sport, it is the most head-to-head -head competition that there is on, the, on any team <coughs> sport because it's measurable down to the tenth and hundredth right. of a second. And nothing affects it other than yourself, right? So, it, you know, you catch it and you kick it and that's it. You either do it better than someone else and, and it's that simple. It's not uh, you throw a football, you got to have someone run the route, catch the ball, right, things mm -hmm. like that. Running the ball, you got to rely on your, your 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 blockers and things like that. When they measure this stuff, it, it's so measurable. But uh, you know that data wasn't accessible to everybody at the time, or no one really used it. So mm -hmm. I guess I was kind of looked over from that perspective. But there was a coach at the time at Western Kentucky, and I'm I'm pretty sure he's not coaching anymore. He may not even be alive. But it was it was John Harbaugh's dad, okay, mm -hmm. Jack Harbaugh, I believe is his name. Um, he coached at Western Kentucky, and he called me after the season and said, hey, my son's going to call you. And he was, at the time, the special teams coach for Philadelphia. Now he's the head coach for the Baltimore Ravens. Right. And he said, my son's going to call you. I'm, I really think you're a good player. And he goes, has any teams talked to you? He goes, no. <laughs> I, I, he, you know, I don't even have an agent. And um, so they were really all over me from the get-go. So I thought that was, you know, I was kind of shocked because no one else was talking to me. And then what had started happening was a guy named Gary Zahner, who's still out there as a coach to this, to this day, but he's not in the NFL. He's a, they call it a guru. He's a guy that you go to to train with, but right. he's not with the team. He was coaching for the Baltimore Ravens. He was the special teams coach for them. And he called me. And uh, again, at, you know, at that time, I had to get a cell phone, you know, <laughs> <laughs> because... You know, they, there was nowhere to call me, or they'd have to call my parents, and my parents would call me. And so I actually, you know, I had my first cell phone back then, and uh, which was kind of funny. And, you know, I would get these random calls from teams at that point in time, but nothing was concrete. And then I didn't get invited to the Combine, wasn't invited to any All-Star games or anything. Um, so at this point, I'm thinking, you know, what, you know, is this how this works or not? And the draft came around, I remember, I was so embarrassed. I didn't even, my wife till this day was my girlfriend then. I didn't invite her over because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I'm right. like, is anyone going to call? Is someone going to call? And around the fifth round, people started, we had two phones at the time. People started calling us and saying that they might draft me. And I was like, man, that'd be, that'd be great. Well, then all of a sudden the picks, you know, they start going, no draft. <laughs> Not drafted. I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> so then I had nine people call me. Uh, and I had to 30 minutes to decide. Really? Mm. Yeah. Wow. 30 minutes. And because they'll move, they'll move past yeah. you. Because mm -hmm. they have yeah. to fill the roster. They fill the roster within probably an hour. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the Philadelphia Eagles is one of those teams. And I, I said yes to them. And they cut me after a day and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I'm sitting there thinking, man, I guess that's it. I guess this is how this works. <laughs> they cut me after a day and a half. But the whole time, you know, uh, through this process, you know, my only mindset was, is I'll just show up and do the best I can, see what happens. I, I always had a mentality that I had nothing to lose. I wasn't, I didn't have any fear. Nothing uh, scared me. And uh, quite frankly, I didn't know what else I'd do with my life anyways. <laughs> uh, I, I hadn't got a degree yet. I was only in college for four years and I played two sports. So I was a semester behind. And um, so for me, I was like, well, if it doesn't work out, I just go back to school. And then I figured it out in December of the following year. So, um, after they cut me, my contract was claimed off waivers by Baltimore, Gary Zahner. Mm -hmm. And I went there, and I trained with them, and I played with them the whole preseason. And what had happened there was kind of luck, but 
um, I, you know, was able to take advantage of it was their punter, who actually was a guy I played against in college, Dave Zastadel. He ended up hurting his leg, and I punted every ball in the whole preseason. So I got, you know, and they were terrible at the time. They couldn't move the ball at all. Um, <laughs> so I punted almost 30 times in the preseason, Jeez. and I did very, I did very well. And so that really put me up, kind of, in I guess the category of what I would call the circuit, and which really means that at that point I would get calls. They cut me because they drafted Dave the year before, but um, I was now in that workout circuit where every week teams would work guys out, and I was one of those guys. And they call, and you just travel around the country. And at the time, I'm going to school still. Uh, and it was December, let's say the first week in December, maybe last week of, of November, and I get a call from um, the Browns, and they sign me. They say, hey, they pack a bag, come out, we're going to put you on the practice squad. The very next day, the Jets tried to claim me on their roster, and then the Browns had to match my contract. So at that point in time, I'm a fully active, rostered player mm -hmm. in the NFL, and that's the first time that that happened. And wow. um, that was December of, God, what was it, 2003. So that's how it happened. And, and quite frankly, you know, I just, I never got down on myself. I never got frustrated. I just kind of kept thinking, well, I'll just keep doing this until we got something else figured out. And uh, it just kind of happened, to be honest with you. So now, like, you're on a team. Mm -hmm. Kind of take me through, like, what happened in the years following your career. Well, um, you know, if I go back, the thing in Philly bothered me a lot because the coach, Harbaugh, never called me. They just cut me. I went back to school, and all of a sudden my, my dad called. Actually, it was that point in time it was my agent who wasn't my agent at the time. It was a, a guy um, who's actually a local hill, Bob Latinville, Clay, lives in Clayton. Uh, he was advising us the whole time. Mm -hmm. And he had called and said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but they cut you. And I was like, what? He, John Harbaugh never called me. Wow. Wow. So that um, was something that kind of always kind of stuck with me. And I yeah. actually, you know, fast forward, I played with the, ball, uh, the Redskins for three years against him in the NFC East twice a year. And I yeah. always, I, you know, I always tried to shove it up as, you know what, <laughs> I always gave him a real firm handshake at, at middle of the field because, always, <laughs> you know, just call me. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But, um, yeah, from there, I mean, fast forwarding, Cleveland was really a disaster to be honest with you, um, the the coaching staff, no offense to the people that were there, but things had fallen apart. The coach actually quit, Butch Davis. Oh, that's okay. right. Yeah, I remember Butch Davis that. came in and literally was crying. This, you know, for those of you who don't know this stuff happens, it does. <laughs> we're all sitting there, and we, we suck, you know, we're the Browns. <laughs> and I actually had, was having a very good year. I, I led the AFC in net punting for the first half of Whoa. the year and couldn't believe it. And then I got an injured... Um, almost severely in the in, in playing the Ravens on Monday or Sunday night football, I actually shanked a seven-yarder out of the back of the end zone. What people don't know is I was playing the whole game with a partially torn ligament in my knee and played wow. the rest of the year with it. And it really kind of messed up my season. But as the season went on, um, you know, we're all – it's uh, Tuesday. So Tuesday's the league start of the, the – the, the league week starts Tuesday at 4 o'clock Eastern. Right. So you don't want to get called on Tuesday. Tuesday <laughs> means they're going to get rid of you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I'm sitting at a buddy's house who actually I played college football with. I was living with him at the time. Um, and he, I, we all get a call. I get a call. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. They're going to cut me. <laughs> so I answer the phone. They're like, you know, come on in. We're going to have a team meeting. I'm like, oh, someone died, right? Because, like, why are they having a team meeting? Right. Just out of nowhere. Someone must have died. So I, we all come in. We're all sitting there in the room, and no one knows what's going on. 
And all of a sudden, Butch Davis comes in, and he's crying like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> you can't understand anything he's saying. And I don't know if he was serious or not. I hope he was. But uh, he quit. And we're like, you can't, this is the NFL, man. You can't quit. I mean, I played with Sean Taylor, who was killed in a home invasion. And yeah. the game is the next week. It doesn't stop. Matt Bryant, his, his child died, I think, right. a day or two before a game. He showed up for the next game. I played in it. And I couldn't believe it. He showed up and played in the next game. This this business does not stop for anything, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're like sitting there thinking, how in the heck could he quit? And he quits. And um, from that point on, we're all just kind of sitting there like, what are we going to – like, what do you do next, right? And then Terry Rubisky was the interim coach and was actually did a great job. But uh, it kind of made me realize that this game is not fun anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the first time that I realized that I wasn't having any fun. And no one was. Everyone was yelling at each other. The coaches, everybody was just, you know, it was the holidays. It was um, right after Thanksgiving. And everyone knew they were getting fired. Coaches, players, everyone knew, they, they, you know, the whole they were going to clean house, whoever they are going to bring in. And it just really sucked. Um, you know, we just got killed in all the games. We played, like, the Patriots and, and Chargers and played one game in a Nor'easter, which just made it even worse. Eight inches of snow during the oh game. <laughs> and, you know, you had to still show up and and play and if you you know because it's about your career at right. that point in time it's not about the team anymore it's just about i hate to say it it's about yourself and 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 doing the best you can do uh because everyone knows that the team is just gonna blow up right and that really sucked because that was the first time that i just said you know what this is really a, a profession and it's not it's not fun anymore and from there um the following season they you know they did bring in other people they kind of got rid of everybody um you know, after – so I went through the whole preseason there. And then they got rid of everybody. And I was actually claimed a week later by the Redskins. And I, I had a great time with the Redskins. Got to play for Joe Gibbs, a phenomenal mm-hmm. coach. Um, we had, you know, great coaches all across the board. Uh, Greg Williams was one of our coaches. Great, yeah. great coach. And we were good. And, uh, you know, we felt like we were a part of something. And that was a real fun three years. And I ended up living in D.C. for ten years. And then um, – they ended up getting rid of me, which, you know, which was another part of my career that probably really kind of rubbed me to a point where I, I wasn't sure that I really wanted to play anymore. And I actually got picked up in Green Bay and just didn't play well there, had some ankle problems and almost made it through most of the season. And then they kind of got rid of me in December. And that was pretty much it for me. And I still tried to go out and, and go to some workouts. And I just didn't have that kind of that fine line that is the difference. Mm-hmm. And what I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is how thin the difference is between being there and not being there. Yeah. And um, especially when you can't hide anywhere. Right. You know, when you're a punter or kicker, you either hit a mm-hmm. good ball or you don't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're playing other positions, there are times where guys can – and, I mean, I saw guys that were not playing hard, and they could string out a career for a little longer. But um, it's the line between making it and not making it at that level is it's it's razor thin. Yeah, it really is. So uh, now I want to ask you a question. Um, so I'm a, I'm a Cowboys fan, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm, I'm a Packers fan. Uh, I feel <laughs> so, sorry for you, man. Not yeah, you. no, thank you. I, yeah, Cowboys. I understand. Uh, so you know, you mentioned how thin the the line was between being there and not being there. So you know, this past season we had a kicker who's kicking like 60%, mm-hmm. 50 60% the entire year, and eventually gets cut, cut in, in week 14. So what would you have to say about that, somebody who obviously like isn't producing consistently, and why maybe they were still there? And what 
types of things can influence you being there and you not being there? Well, uh, it's a it's a mix of things. It can be anything from how the team's doing. Mm-hmm. So if you're the Cowboys, for example, you're under the microscope. Every I mean, it was. I mean, I've watched the headlines, and it's it's hysterical. I mean, <laughs> they were pretty much going to make the playoffs almost the whole year. Yeah. And everyone's like, they got to fire Jason Garrett. they got to fire yeah. Jason Garrett. I'm like, they're number one in the NFC East right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're going to make the playoffs. No, they didn't. But, um, it, you know, if you're a kicker or if you're any position player, it has to do with your leverage mm-hmm. and how the team's playing. So if you have a big contract, they're going to give you an opportunity. And they're going to give you lots of them. Or if you have a track record with them, and then there are um, there are other situations. I, I've had a couple clients actually that were pro bowlers, mm-hmm. and teams got rid of them because they needed someone to throw under the bus for a loss. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot easier to throw a kicker under the right. bus than a first round safety who got burned up and down the field all day long. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is a true story. Right. Um, you know, Sean Sweezum was a. I don't know if he was a Pro Bowl caliber, but he was a hell of a kicker for um, for um, the Steelers once the Redskins cut him. Mm-hmm. We played in a game. We lost. He kicked a – it was under 30 yards. I want to say it was like 28 yards. He missed like a, a field goal of that depth late in the game. And the very next – it was against the – against the Saints. The very next drive, Drew Brees drove it right down the middle mm-hmm. the entire game. I think it was I think it was Drew Brees drove it right down the middle lost the game mm. okay everyone's like ah, if you had made that kick they wouldn't have lost the game the reality was their first round pick at safety I won't you know name his name but he got he just got torched the whole game right. but he's a first round pick yeah you can't cut him they're like not that. they're not cutting that guy they're not blaming the game on him so yeah. you got to blame it on somebody or else you're not doing your job in the media and so these a lot of these teams they lose control the media uh, if they don't keep control of the media and the fan base and things like that they just they lose control and um i think you know unfortunately the redskins and the cowboys are uh, you i can you can see that in mm-hmm. the media yeah that's affects their decision making process definitely good um so you're talking about your nfl career uh do you feel like playing at clayton uh influenced that at all did you learn anything while you were here that helped you along the way well i think um i think sports in general are, are great for everybody really, because you have to work with people and to achieve something very difficult. But it also teaches you how to lose and fail because I think even now what I see is, you know, in the, in the professional realm, this younger generation, they expect everything to be great all the time because they haven't seen anything go bad. Mm-hmm. You know, and there will be a point where things do go bad again, the economy, maybe wars, whatever it is. There's been a long stretch where things really haven't gone wrong, probably since 9-11, mm-hmm. right? And um, people need those things to kind of wake them up. And sports is kind of a, on a much lower scale, but it's kind of a constant reminder that, you know, things are difficult and working with other people isn't easy. You know, football is a great game because, especially at the highest levels, people are from all walks of life, all over the, you know, now even all over the world. But all over the country... Rich, poor, black, white, you know, Mormon, Christian, Jewish, whatever it is, Asian, you know, Hispanic, it is a melting pot of people. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of them. And it's very it's specific to your position. And then you, all these guys have to work together to, um, to be the best. It's not easy to do. To me, I think that's a skill 
that is very valuable uh, through team sports, you know. And there are some individual sports, uh, you know, I don't want to single those out, but you're all still on a team when you're an individual. There's other players on the team, and you may not have to play with them, but still, you know, th making sure the team is great and working with each other, practicing against each other, that's part of sports. And um, I think that's the real beauty of sports, aside from just the winning aspects. It teaches you things because learning how to lose is very important. You know, I didn't handle losing very well, um, and I still don't. I don't like to lose. But you have to learn how to lose so that you can then figure out how to win the next time. And that's an important process that I think a lot of people miss um, with certain elements of life, how they are today versus how they were when I was younger. And even younger than me, yeah. right? So they mm -hmm. say people that went to World War II, the greatest generation ever. I mean, I can't imagine what those people went through, right? Many of them, most of them came back, lived very normal lives, you know, and, and really built part of the greatest, you know, decade that the, um, or not decade, the greatest, um, you know, 100 years that, that this country's probably seen. And um, that's, you know, that may never happen again with a generation of people like that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had Ben Hockman on the podcast mm -hmm. uh, a little bit earlier, and he mentioned that there was this group while they were at Clayton called the Mad Hatters. Mm -hmm. Were you a part of the Mad Hatters? No. No, I think it was. I want to say it was him and Monty Hobson. It was the, his our grade was not good at the things that were fun and interesting like that. <laughs> to be honest with you, you know, we didn't have nearly as much creativity as as some of the older grades did. Before them, there was a group called the Antlers. When I was a kid, uh -huh. I mean, you know, and it was um, God. Who was it? It was. Um, um, it was it was Crouppen, Sam Crouppen, and another group oh, of guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were kind of like, uh, kind of like your sports support staff. You know, <laughs> they, they weren't into cheerleading, but you know, they were fun and exciting. And before them, it was the Antlers. And our, our I don't know, our grade just didn't have that type of. Uh, they they weren't that creative, <laughs> not at all. But no, I do remember those guys, and um, those are fun things. That again, that's part of being in sports. Yeah, you know, and I, I I'm that's just you know. It's fun to talk about making it to the very top level, but the reality is not very many people ever get to make it there. There's still so much to be gained from, you know, the sports and playing in sports and being a part of them, even if you can't make the team, just being a part of them in a way. That's a real valuable, I think, for society that, you know, I think people need to, um, you know, still evaluate because nowadays with kids, I got three kids, it's hard to even get them into sports because it's so specialized and mm -hmm. people want to be so good, and that's great. But they kind of lose some of the real purpose behind it when, you know, you've, you, your kid can't play two or three sports because you have to spend so much time just sending them to one all the time, right. you know. And I think people are losing focus on the real value of it. Mm -hmm. um, when uh, One of the biggest concerns right now with football is obviously like the head injuries mm -hmm. and the prevalence of CT and things like that. Um, when you were playing, did you see um, – I, maybe not so much you as a punter, but some of your teammates having problems with head injuries. And then on top of that, um, with your kids, do you have any concerns about them playing football? So when I played, it really wasn't a known problem. And it's funny, I, when this first started happening and, and it, was, it became a known issue, I was pretty much out of the league. And I got into some arguments with a couple people, real bad ones, because people said, ah, oh, they knew what they signed up for. The reality was until about 2010, 2009, 2010, uh, 
the protocol for getting hit in the head was here are some smelling salts. What's your name? You know, can you count forward and backwards, ABCs? How many fingers am I holding up? Mm -hmm. That was it. If you can answer those questions, it wasn't, hey, you know, let's come off the field and let's see. No, it was like, okay, you're not coming off the field. Like, you just stay out there. And um, that was just the way the game was played. And quite frankly, you didn't know any different. When I was playing, they started counting concussions. And so guys would just lie. They would just tell you they didn't have any. I think some guys never knew what one was. I mean, I was hit you know, quite a few times, or I hit people quite a few times, especially in college and in high school. And, you know, you lose vision or different things like that, but you don't have to be knocked out, you know, mm -hmm. but we didn't know that at the time. And everyone's like, well, you get knocked out. That's probably pretty bad. Other than that, it was, well, he's doing okay. From that point, you know, seeing now I was on the board of directors with the NFLPA on their former player side um, for six years and seeing the effects on the older players is um, is pretty brutal. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of these guys are they don't function well in society. They need they need help all the time. Some of many of them have already died. Um, you know, now the you know Lou Gehrig's is a very rare ALS, very rare, extremely rare. It's extremely rare in pro sports and in football, mm -hmm. but it's still double the rate. You know, so if the rates, you know half a percent it's one percent i mean it's still low right i don't know if that's the actual percentage my point is it's a low low percent right but it's a brutal sport and um it's never you know legislating that out of the game is going to be near impossible to do because that's the beauty of the game and instead of you know getting a concussion now you get your acl blown out because guys going over the middle are coming at you and i don't know if there's a way around that stuff I do think that science and medicine will eventually continue to, I think that's the real answer. I think you can legislate certain things in the game, but I, I don't think you can create a better helmet. I mean, there are better ones, but I don't think it's gonna fix it. I really think that there's gonna need to be a, a, a breakthrough in medicine because before, you know, to me, this is the mental health era, in my opinion, of, 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 the, of the world, mm -hmm. especially the United States. It's not just sports. It's that people have mental health issues. They don't realize that cell phones cause mental health issues because it's new, right? Or, or devices and the way people are just quietly living their lives. These things are all part of, a, of not understanding how the brain works, not understanding how to heal the brain. I think that's really the next phase of, of modern science and modern healthcare. I think before that, it was um, orthopedics. You know, if, if you were playing football in the eras before me and you blew out your knee, or, or hurt your back or broke your ankle, you were kind of done. You know, like there weren't good procedures to help you, especially in ACL. That's like a normal thing now, right? Mm -hmm. They're even, they even have new experiments where they have ways to grow your own ACL back, okay, that they're, that they're studying right now. So that was, in my opinion, the era of medicine for a very long period of time, and, and that's starting to slow down. Now I think it's mental health. So my, my point is I think that will continue to evolve. And I think it's good that football makes it, you know, front and center because it gives us something to look at. It gives us data. But in terms of my own kids, if they want to play football, they can play football. Um, the game was good to me. And, um, you know, life, you know, everyone wants to live as long as they can. But, you know, someone once told me this, and it's true. I don't, you really don't need anybody to tell you this. But the only thing guaranteed in life is death. 
okay? You can't walk around your whole life fearing that you're going to die <laughs> or things are going to kill you because the reality is that's just the way this world is. You're going to die. Um, now, you don't have to do stupid things, but playing a great sport like that has done invaluable things for my family, my kids, my personal life. You know, there's real value to that, that no matter what happens to me from here on out, I've really benefited from the game. Mm -hmm. And for guys on TV to say, I would never let my kids play that game, I don't know how they could arrive at that, um, at that answer. I really don't. Um, it is a brutal game, and it's always going to be brutal, but that's why it, it, it's popular. That's why get guys get paid a good amount of money. Um, that's why it, it can do things for their next career. You know, and I think those are all good things. There are also, by the way, there are also lots of other sports like, you know, women's soccer where, mm -hmm. you know, my kids are playing soccer. And they're, they're boys, but women's soccer has a high level, a very high level of concussions, yeah. knee injuries. But you can't even, you're not even allowed to head a ball anymore in youth soccer mm -hmm. yeah. until you're like in almost high school or junior high. Yeah. I mean, my son's out there playing the game and, you know, he's had the ball twice on purpose and it's like a penalty kick because they had the ball. Mm -hmm. That's how serious people. Now I think that's a little crazy, but <laughs> yeah. that you know that's how I think you know. There's a point where kind of the pendulum overswings on stuff, and then you get back to being normal when the real data comes out. And I think we're getting close to that point. Mm -hmm. People have been looking at it for long enough now, where I think people will start to see that. You know, I, do I think that kids should play football at six years old and eight years old and ten years old? I do not. I actually think that that's a bad idea. Now, is it because of mental health? Yes, partially, but I also think it's a very bad youth sport. Um, in my opinion, football is the most natural game that there is on the planet, unless you're throwing or catching or kicking the ball. Tackling, blocking people, that can be taught very quickly. Some people just want to do it or they don't. Some people are good at it or they're not. Um, you know, there are, there are guys, you know, Antonio Gates was a, was a basketball player. Yeah. How many times did he go to the Pro Bowl? You know, never played a down of football basketball player so um so those things happen in, in football you don't really see that in other sports no one picks up a baseball bat i mean mm -hmm. michael jordan tried it he couldn't really i mean yeah. didn't really go anywhere right right batted like 200 um it just you know that that's my thoughts on it i i, I think it's a great game and it's a shame to me that the numbers are down but um i get it it's just it's it's part of the process it'll wash itself out eventually um, so, you know, a lot of times we see stories about um, athletes who didn't manage their money well when they were playing, um, and then, you know, they go on and after they retire, they, they lose all their money very quickly. Um, so you right now with uh, your firm, you're helping these athletes um, be smart with their money uh, while they're playing and after they're playing. So do you want to talk a little bit about um, how you ended up there? Sure. Uh <laughs> So in 2005, I was still playing for the Redskins, and I met a guy at a luncheon. And he said to me, he said, you know, I want you to work for me when you're done playing. And I really thought the guy was full of, you know what? Because <laughs> I, at the time, I, really, I didn't ever think, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And I mean, I, I played three more years after that, but I never even gave it any thought <laughs> what I'd be doing. This same guy, in 2008, the day I was cut from the Packers, called me, and I, I immediately started working with him. <laughs> in the wealth management business. And at that point in time, it's uh, January of 2009, so the world is literally exploding. Everyone's, I mean, the stock market's cratering. <laughs> you know, everybody is going crazy. And um, so I got to see a lot 
right away a lot. I actually saw this company that this guy had brought me into actually ended up being a Ponzi scheme. He had nothing to do with it. No one in our office did. It was three people out of Houston, Texas, and the company was called Stanford Financial. It's an $8 billion Ponzi scheme. That office was open for six months. Um, it ruined everyone's career that was there, oh, and wow. they didn't steal a single penny. But because they didn't know about it, every one of their clients said, how did you not know? Well, neither of their clients lost any money. Right. But what I saw there was is how serious it is when you deal with people's money and the things that can happen if things aren't done in a certain way. And so, you know, I worked for a couple larger firms after that, but I never trusted them. Mm-hmm. One of them was Wells Fargo. Probably shouldn't have trusted them to see the stuff they've done. <laughs> Um, no offense to people that work there, but I always had this belief, and I'm kind of like this naturally, but when I saw all this stuff happen in front of me, I thought I kind of need to be the point man on how this is going to all operate, and that's how I built my business, and it's very small. The good news is I've been able to um, target the right kind of clients, and, and, and a good portion of those are pro athletes, and what I do for them and is really simple is I really set up a plan for them so that they know how much money they have for the rest of their life. Now, if they don't want to follow it, I can't work with them mm-hmm. because they're going to be broke and then they're going to call me and they're going to waste my time and I'm going to say, I, you should have listened to me 10 years ago. Okay? And a guy told me that. He said, you just, some people you got to get rid of. That was very hard for me to do, but I have done that. Um, and when people don't listen and I'm adamant about it, you have to be firm with people. Most people are afraid to do that because they don't want to lose a client. But I think... The good news with the athletes, most of them are that I have are great guys. And a lot of the guys in the league, they make a lot of money and they do save it. And they give a lot of it away and they support nonprofits and they do all this stuff. And you see some of that in the media. But you always see the, the, the bum, the guy right, who's broke and whatever else, because that the media likes to sell. Mm-hmm. The reality is the numbers are pretty bad. Um, but you know what? Just about any 22-year-old kid would also probably do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, um, it's not normal to make a bunch of money and then save it. That's not how it works because the you know psychology. Any of you guys study economics, you know, you'll learn that when you make it fast, you kind of spend it fast. Mm-hmm, yeah. And that's the psychology behind money. When you work for something forever and you start making a lot of money you tend to treat it better. The problem is guys in football, they don't see it that way. They haven't seen it as if they've been working for it towards, you know, or since they've been a kid, they see it like all of a sudden I get all this money. They're not seeing it the right way. They don't remember how difficult it was to get there. And I don't know why they don't, but um, there also is a lot of outside influence with a lot of these guys, whether it's bad representation, family, um, you know, just, just running in the wrong crowds. Everyone's got an idea. And so what I've been able to do is build, you know, we're, we're in, you know, we're in the stock market, the public markets, we have a private real estate fund and we have guaranteed accounts for guys, insurance products, things like that. We have just about everything that a guy would need to invest in so that he doesn't need to go somewhere else. And that's what we built out. Uh, because if you can't offer that to people, they'll find something else, they'll get into it. You know, there's a guy in the league you know, I played with, made $50 million, filed for bankruptcy, kind of did everything the right way, drove a, drove a truck, wore, wore Wranglers in a, in a flannel, never spent a ton of money. But he went into private real estate. He guaranteed a bunch of debt mm-hmm. to do his own deals with people that he thought he knew because they couldn't, they guaranteed the debt too. But what people don't realize is uh, 
when you guarantee debt, whoever's got the biggest pocketbook at the end, if it's a uh, joint and several guarantee, they're going to come after whoever's got the most money. Mm-hmm. You have to file for bankruptcy. What we do is we have our own fund, and me and my partner guarantee the debt. None of our clients guarantee anything, so that will never happen to them. Guys don't really understand that. Most 24-year-olds don't understand that. They think that, oh, it's I'll just sign on the line. Those banks would love to have their guarantee. They yeah. don't really understand that because they haven't seen it go bad yet. So I, I went through 08. I saw guys on my team that lost homes just because they bought them at the wrong time, even if they didn't do anything really wrong. They just said, just let it go to foreclosure. Those are the things that I saw over many years, that along with the, you know working for Stanford that I you know really imprinted in my mind that, you know, um, the easiest way to make money, number one, is not to lose it, right? <laughs> okay, because if you lose it, you gotta you gotta make it back. So right. if you lose, you know, um, you know, it, it, to taxes and things like that, it, that's the hardest part is making it back. In fact, it's next to impossible, right? Um, so the the key first is for guys is don't lose it to to frivolous things, and get them set up on a plan. And you know, people have to be willing to work with you, mm-hmm. also. And if they can't if they can't work with you, you have to get rid of them. And that's, I think that's a good lesson for any business is, you know, you, you have to be um, proud of what you do and how you do it. And if it doesn't work for some people, just move on. Find the people that it does work for. Everybody right now wants to be, uh, you know, the next Instagram star or something like that, right? They want someone else's life. Mm-hmm. The reality is you got your own life, you got your own skill set. If it doesn't fit for who you're trying to get, find the people that it does. And that's what I've done. Now, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate as pro athletes, but I have non-pro athlete clients that are great clients. And, you know, that's about uh, two-thirds of the, uh, the number of clients that I have are not pro athletes. So, but, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think any business can, can benefit from that philosophy is do what you do best, and if it doesn't fit, you know, um, find the people that does fit for uh, so at the end of each one of our interviews, what we do is we ask uh, either the – if it's a player, we ask them to describe their coach with one word, or if it's a coach, you know, describe their seniors or some of their players with one word. So you had Coach Suker. Mm-hmm. So if you could describe Coach Suker <laughs> with one word, what word would you use to describe? Oh, man, I play golf with him every year too. <laughs> <laughs> um. We've had some pretty interesting ones, so, and we're, we're loose. Word, we're loose with tough. we're loose with the one word. We've had a lot of hyphenateds. Three words. We had some four words, five words. <laughs> I wish I could tell the story about him, but I probably can't. <laughs> <laughs> some mint, mint, mint dip story. <laughs> I would just say uh, wise. Wise would be uh, along the lines of what I just said about you know getting rid of people. When I played high school baseball, I was a lunatic. And he told me, he goes, if you don't change your attitude, you won't play for me. And that that was a wake-up call because I, apparently I was good enough most of my life to get away with whatever I wanted to get away with with my attitude. And he just wouldn't put up with it anymore. And that made me change. It made me say, yeah, I better do, you know, no one's ever said that to me before. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't going to play me anymore just because I was good. And that, you know, that meant that, and the wisdom that I see that I have now, and I had zero back then, um, that was the right thing. He should have done that, you know. So, Wis- wisdom. Wisdom. 
I like it. I like it. Yeah. Or Thank wise. you so much yeah. for being on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Really appreciate it. Guys, I, I'm sorry it took so long to. No, no, no. Say this yes, was. But... This was a <laughs> no, no, it was great. Yeah. All right. Thank you. You bet, guys.